Welcome to the History Tricks, where any resemblance to a boring old history lesson is purely coincidental. And here's your 30-second summary. Wilma Mankiller became the standard bearer for overcoming obstacles by being of good mind, a Cherokee principle that guided her through a life of activism, community service, and her election as the first female chief of the Cherokee Nation. The end. Let's talk about Wilma Mankiller. But first, let's drop her into history. In 1945, in addition to everything that was happening in World War II, Pepe Le Pew made his film debut, and 10-year-old Elvis Presley won second place in his first public singing appearance at a Mississippi talent show. Grand Rapids, Michigan became the first city to fluoridate its water. 19-year-old Princess Elizabeth joined the British Auxiliary Transport Service as a driver. French women were allowed to vote for the very first time. The modern trampoline and the microwave oven were both patented. Franklin Delano Roosevelt was sworn in for his historic, unprecedented, and never-to-be-repeated fourth term as president. The radio show Meet the Press first debuted, and Ebony Magazine was first published. Rod Stewart, Bob Marley, Eric Clapton, Bob Seeger, Carly Simon, Deborah Harry were all born. Anne Frank died. George and Barbara Bush were married, and in 1945, future Cherokee chief Wilma Mankiller's extraordinary life began. Wilma Pearl Mankiller was born on November 18, 1945, in Tahlequah, Oklahoma, the sixth of the 11 children of Charlie and Clara Sitton Mankiller. Her secret Cherokee name was Aji Lubsky, which means flower. That family name, Aniska Yadihi, literally translates as killer of men or men killer. And man killer was actually her last name, but it probably doesn't mean what you think it means. It was a title. It was a rank for the protector of a community. And when it was a title, that was their entire name, just that one word. But when they needed to anglicize their name, Wilma's great-great-grandfather just picked his job title, as their surname. There might be a darker meaning behind Mankiller. Um, these guys were also known as, how shall I put it, the enforcers, the enactors of revenge. <laughs> you don't want this guy after you. Let's just say his name meant something back in the day. Unlike our usual pattern of jumping right into the story of our subject, herself, we thought we needed to perhaps rewind the story back quite a bit in this case in order to give you a framework to hang her story on. During our Pocahontas episode, we talked about the sort of gentle bewilderment of the Native Americans, Palatin and his people, watching these newcomer doofuses continually mess up and starve, and the initial period of trying to help their fellow creatures out. The English settlers, however, were already wearing out their welcome by the time that Pocahontas died in 1617, and by the mid-1650s, settlers were both wary of the beatdown they were in for if they crossed the Cherokee people and irresistibly drawn to the money to be made by trading with them. The land that the Cherokee tribes controlled was about 40,000 square miles of modern-day Georgia, Tennessee, North and South Carolina. Not to mention Alabama, Virginia, and most of modern-day Kentucky. That's a big territory. 
It took decades and increasing numbers of white settlers, but through the whole of the 1700s, the worst parts of European culture began to infect the Cherokee Nation. Alcoholism and slavery were the two worst. Traditional communal living and equality of the sexes began to erode as well. Originally, the women of the villages were the leaders. The men went out hunting and came home to the woman's house. The women owned the property. The women married and divorced as they saw fit, and they were also the administers of justice. They were the government. But as these years progressed, that role became diminished and diminished because of the influence of the white settlers that were coming in. A smallpox epidemic in 1738 killed half the Cherokee people on Earth, which was interpreted by many of them as punishment for abandoning the old ways. The once great and powerful Cherokee nation was adrift, unraveling, as Wilma Mankeller herself put it. Much later than this, of course. So in 1775, the English got hold of most of Kentucky from the Cherokee Nation. It was sort of a strong-arm action, the first of many, if you ask me. And during the Revolutionary War, the Cherokees nevertheless fought for the side of the British. Um, There had been quite a bit of intermarriage, and the people that had married into the Cherokee tribe were largely Tories or Loyalists. Same thing. Since both the Cherokee and the British wanted to contain the colonists, seems like we got to make allies there. And we know how that particular war turned out. So these tribes suffered in the aftermath. Towns were burned, men were killed, and trees with this government or that resulted in more and more loss of land. Thomas Jefferson called, quote, the Indians a, and I quote again, useless, expensive, and ungovernable ally. And his solution to what was already called the Indian problem, get them to assimilate into white society. Or if they won't, or if they can't, we got to get them to move. He just bought quite a bit of land from Napoleon. We know it as the Louisiana Purchase. That's how we learned it in school. And immediately, the American government used financial pressure to lever the Cherokees out of their traditional homeland voluntarily. You can take as a given from this point on, any treaty made with the Cherokees would be broken by the government of America just as soon as it became inconvenient. I'm just saying. Yeah. The Cherokee were part of five different tribes that did try to play nice with the new American government. Some of them learned the language. They tried to broker these treaties, but it all backfired rapidly. The increasingly intolerant government of America was absolutely incensed when the Cherokee Nation wrote its own constitution in 1827, which was based on that winning document that America had rolled out not too long ago. Three branches of government, a Supreme Court, two legislative houses, and a proclamation that the Cherokee Nation was an independent entity within America and within the traditional homelands, they were the authority. Impudence! How dare these creatures pretend like they're humans, said Americans. We want them gone. And then, unfortunately for everyone... 
Andrew Jackson was elected president, the most prejudiced of them all, who called the Indian treaties absurd. He viewed it as making treaties with animals, and he was elected the president in 1828, which led directly to the Indian Removal Act of 1830. The Cherokees resisted by legal means as long as they could, even taking their case to the Supreme Court. But by 1838, the pressure cooker blew apart and ended in an event that we know as the Trail of Tears. Jackson's view was, and I quote, Indians had no right to occupy land within the United States. And so it began. The Cherokee were not actually moved until the next presidential administration under Martin Van Buren. So that's how long this plan is in place. Troops with bayonets would march into their villages. They would loot them. They would force all the people to march. It's a 1,200-mile trip. It took 116 days, and 16,000 Cherokee people left. Unfortunately, because of whooping cough and typhus, dysentery, cholera, injury, and starvation, four to 5,000 people, depending on your source, died during that trek. And I don't want you to think that it was simply a walk. People would drag people out of their cabins. Lady persons were not treated well. That's as far as I'm going to go in a G-rated podcast. Years and years later, some of the soldiers who participated in this had some things to say about what they saw. And I just want to read you a quote here. I fought through the Civil War, and I have seen men shot to pieces and slaughtered by the thousands, but the Cherokee removal was the cruelest work I ever saw. Here's another. I saw the helpless Cherokees arrested and dragged from their homes and driven at the bayonet point into the stockades, and in the chill of a drizzling rain on an October morning, I saw them loaded like cattle or sheep into wagons and start toward the West. One can never forget the sadness and solemnity of that morning. And then, murder is murder whether committed by the villains in the dark or by uniformed men stepping to the strains of martial music. Wow. Yeah. The Cherokees were forced to try to make a new life in what was called Indian Territory, which is, let's call it, parts of southern Kansas and the rightmost side of Oklahoma. Also part of Arkansas modern day. We have been here before on this very podcast. Let me read you a quote. See if you know where it comes from. I'm sure 90% of you have read it. When white settlers come into a country, the Indians have to move on. The government's going to move these Indians further west any time now. That's why we're here. White people are going to settle all this country, and we get the best land because we got here first and take our pick. Pa Ingalls, Little House on the Prairie. Wow. Sometimes you just get a slap in the face from history, don't you? Well, we will certainly link you to those controversies. In this case, in the Ingalls' case, it was the Osage. But with attitudes like that from the supporters of Native Americans, Pa was actually considered quite liberal in his attitudes. He also once said the Indians would be as nice as anyone if they were just left alone. What chance did any tribes have of getting a bit of peace? The surviving Cherokee, they did set up homes. They did established communities. They did establish governments within their new territory. They tried to make the best out of it, and they did for quite a while until the United States said, oh, hey, let's make Oklahoma a state. When that happened, everything was off the table. It was time for all those treaties, again, to be ripped up. The deal was this. 
each family was going to receive 160 acres on the grounds that the people would become United States citizens. Now, the U.S. didn't hold up their end of that very well because it took another 37 years for that to happen. But Wilma's grandfather was one of those recipients. He named his property Mankiller Flats. It's in northeastern Oklahoma near the Arkansas and Missouri border. It seems nice, doesn't it, to deed someone 160 acres of land? But the motivation was so horrible. Teddy Roosevelt himself said it was to, and I quote, break up the tribal mass. Assimilation, again, seemed to be the goal. The breaking apart of the group to make it easier to whittle down, I guess, Mm -hmm. just never stops. It literally does not. In the 1920s, the United States government ran boarding schools for Native children. They would go out and round up students for hundreds of miles and bring them back and forbid them to speak Cherokee under pain of physical punishment. They cut the children's hair short and said they were saving them by taking them from their parents and civilizing them. There were many cases of sexual harassment and death in addition to the trauma of forced removal from their families and separation from their culture. So, okay, here we are at our usual starting point. The history of our subject's parents is about to begin. But I do believe we can all agree that the relationship between the Cherokee people and the rest of America has been fraught and unsettling. And that is the G-rated vocabulary, to say the least. Papa Charlie was born only seven years after Oklahoma had become a state, one of only two children in his family, as his mother died when he was a toddler during the Spanish flu epidemic. He went to one of these schools with his older sister in Tahlequah, Oklahoma. It was the Sequoia Training School run by the U.S. government. I am happy to say that now it is still a school and it's one of five that are operated by the Cherokee Nation. So that has a good ending. Papa and his sister were four to go to the Sequoia School where he spent 12 years being, quote, civilized. He did not grow up in a family, but in an institution, a very strict environment, although he did develop a, a love of history and learning and a vast network of friends. In contrast, Mama Clara Sitton was the child of white farmers of Dutch and Irish descent, who this is a bit of humor, went to school at the Titanic Oklahoma one Room <laughs> schoolhouse. <laughs> yes, it was named after the ship. Uh, that is not a good thing to name your town after. No, no, it's not. So Papa and Mama knew each other for most of their lives. There was one nearby town that had a store that pretty much everyone within striking distance had to go to. And that's where Charlie and Irene met when they were younger. Charlie is about six years older than Irene, but they grew up kind of knowing each other, knowing each other well enough that at one point, Charlie was teasing Irene so badly that she threw a pie in his face. That that tells you how well they knew each other. Pie face. True love. (laughs) That's right. That's right. Against the wishes of her parents, 15-year-old Clara ran away and married 21-year-old Charlie Mankiller. 11% of girls from 15 to 19 were getting married in the 20s. And remember... In decades previous to this, that Laura Ingalls Wilder was only 15 when she began seeing 25-year-old Almanzo, too. So there's something about this open prairie. But anyway, (laughs) Mama's parents were frosty. 
very frosty. For a number of years, they didn't speak to their daughter, although ultimately they did come around. Wow, you're very kind. I just simply called them racist. In my notes. Well, however, their oldest daughter was already married to a full-blooded Cherokee. So, mm-hmm. I, you know, I don't know that it was just that. No, I think that was a huge part of it. They wanted Irene to marry a white boy. The end. I mean, you know, at the time, everybody wants their daughters to get into good marriages that will take care of them. And Charlie didn't appear to be that kind of guy to her parents because he was impoverished and he was Cherokee. So that's why they wanted a white husband for her. That's my theory. I don't know. I think it was personal because of the older sister. It's just like that that theory would have held up had her older sister not married the well, Cherokee yeah. also. How about this? We lost one of you to the Cherokees. We're not going to lose all of you. Well, they did. So the They guys. did. <laughs> they did. And from the day that they married, Irene lived like a Cherokee. She learned the language well enough to be able to speak to relatives. Uh, She upheld the traditions and the customs just as if she were Cherokee her entire life. Well, Pearl, as our subject, was called by the family when she was little, grew up in a wood frame house that her father had built himself with his own two hands on her grandpa's property, a piece of land, like Susan said earlier, called Man Killer Flats. It had been in her family for over three decades by now. There was no electricity. There was no running water. They had an outhouse. They had to haul water from a spring, which they also used as a refrigerator, which is very boxcar children. That's the first time (laughs) I ever heard of anyone doing that. They had a big kitchen garden where they were able to grow things like tomatoes and corn and beans uh, for the family. And then they would grow peanuts or sometimes strawberries. Strawberries are kind of dicey. They're hard to grow um, for trading purposes. The family ate a lot of squirrels, which (laughs) you could have lived comfortably in my yard, friends, because (laughs) this is rodent central. You can't even mow the lawn without like stomping and double checking for baby rabbits. Uh, And the squirrels eat my pumpkins every year. Well, she grew up very, very poor, dirt poor, in her own words, in material terms, though Papa and a couple of her older brothers did do some field work and cut railroad ties for a lumber company, but she didn't know. She's a little kid. Um, And community-wise, she wasn't poor at all. Children were raised by a village. You knew everyone. Everyone knew you. It was, you know, comforting place to be. Going to get water was a social event. And as another social event, I found this really curious. The family would go to a nearby Baptist church. She said that they weren't Christian, but I think it was just for the social aspect of it. But they also participated in tribal community events. But most of their life was spent outside, you know, doing chores, helping with the harvest, gathering wood. And then she did go to school. All the kids went to school. They walked three miles to a three-room schoolhouse wearing dresses that were made from flower sacks. During the Depression, the flower companies realized that women were taking this fabric with the flower in it and making clothes. So they started to print really cute patterns on all that fabric so that the women could, you know, buy the flower, get some fabric, and make at least some clothes that had some pretty to them. They stopped doing this in 1945, which was the year that she was born. So the dresses that she's wearing are not only made out of sackcloth, but they're very much hand-me-downs 
She is the sixth of 11 children. However, that's, that's very true. Hand-me-downs are her life, no matter where she grew up. <laughs> I say as the oldest, as my one advantage is I got all the clothes first. <laughs> that's the only girl I did too. I do want to go back a second to when you said they went to the Baptist church and I have a hmm, cynical viewpoint. I almost wonder if it was cover because there was sort of a Cherokee traditional society being maintained right under the noses of mainstream America. And Pearl and her siblings were told to keep it secret when the family went to Cherokee ceremonial dances or singing gatherings. The white people wouldn't understand. They would say it was sinful. We have to keep this within the family. Don't tell your white friends at school type of thing. So given the fact that later a woman man killer said she'd never once read a word of the Bible in her life. I'm actually going to support that theory. I do agree with you. She never read any of the Bible, but she was very well read. Her father was very well read. Her parents made sure that there were always books in the house. For the kids to read. And I'm not sure if it was these warnings of secrecy or other encounters she and her friends that walked to school with her had almost weekly encounters with these women. They would call the bless your little heart ladies that would pull up beside them and just coo and exclaim about how poor the children were and blah, blah, blah. And Pearl was afraid of white people, actually, throughout her childhood. And she used to run out and hide in the outhouse whenever white relatives came to visit and could not be coaxed to come in for any reason. Most Cherokee families were bilingual, Cherokee at home and English in the world. But Pearl's family, though bilingual, with their white mother, they often spoke English at home. And they were a little rusty, the Cherokee, most of the time. I actually am interested to know if there are any bilingual children families out there, if they started out with the language of the mother or the language of the father. Oh, interesting. Would you start out with the language of the area that you're living in? I, I don't know. My family only speaks one language. I don't know because my friend who lives in Paris, her children didn't speak any language until they were about three, which is something else that can happen is that they have to have a longer processing time and no one said a sentence for years. Oh my. Because <laughs> um, things have to be kind of slotted into their place. So it could go any number of ways. I'm just interested to know. So she's standing in two worlds with one foot in the outer world and the other deep into her Cherokee culture until the age of 11 when the United States government stepped in again with another solution to what it persisted in calling the Indian problem. During World War II, the United States relocated Japanese Americans into internment camps. You probably know one member of this, Mr. Sulu, George Takei, was one of the kids who went through this forced relocation, and he's very open about talking about it. And although, of course, now we think of these as concentration camps, this was a horrible violation of civil rights, of human rights. At the time, they were considered by the government anyway to have been great successes, so much so that the man who had been in charge of the Japanese internment camps, a man who called Native Americans, and I quote, primitive creatures, he was put in charge of sort of doing the opposite with the Native American population. Scatter them, won't you? Break up this notion of tribes and of culture. It was referred to as termination. 
Gee, that, they're not even softening at this point, are they? No. So the government began to end all federal assistance and protection to tribal lands all over the United States. So that's the stick. And then they devised this program of job training and relocation, accompanied by clever marketing brochures with smiling families in clean, nice houses. They were moving them to big cities across America. That was the carrot. No one's forcing you said the wolf in sheep's clothing. Mm-hmm. Her parents bought into what they were selling on those brochures. And her father said, okay, we're going to do it. We're going to get a better life for our kids. They firmly believed that following this plan was going to make their families better, just elevate them. They could have chosen a number of cities, but they chose San Francisco primarily because Mama Irene's mother had moved out there. So she was in the area and not right in San Francisco, but close enough. So they said, there's family out there. We're going to go out there. It'll be fine. Unless you're a kid who's being uprooted from everything that you know. So they moved to San Francisco and, oh, said the government, we don't have any housing ready. Sorry about that. So the innocent family from the country spent the first two weeks of their new lives in a seedy hotel in a really dodgy area, hiding under the beds when they heard sirens and listening to the screaming and arguing from the street. And I'm reminded of that scene from Big, where Tom Hanks goes to the, do you remember that? Where he was mm-hmm. so scared into the gross, dirty motel. Loud. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. And he was so scared. The whole family was like that, like hugging each other just from fear. It reminded me of an entirely different movie, Enchanted, where Amy Adams' character is in the birth singing animated world and she's banished to real life loud and noisy New York City and she's just dropped in the middle of New York City streets not knowing what anything was and that's what happened to Wilma and her brothers and sisters everything was foreign to them they didn't know how to dial a phone an elevator what is an elevator there was no food on a menu that they recognized it was all foreign and they hated it. They were also cut off from all of their extended family from the comfort of that sort of familiarity. Even though they got an apartment in a very poor area, but a respectable one, and and Papa got a job at a rope factory, his salary isn't enough to maintain a large family in a bigger city. And the oldest brother had to not go to school and go to work at the rope factory, too. Also, Mama had no way to supplement the family's table like she did at home. She can't grow tomatoes. The little boys can't go hunting for squirrels. They were in a pickle. When Wilma went to school, it didn't get any better for her. It was disastrous. She was behind academically to begin with. Then she was teased for her clothing, for her last name, for her accent. She was relentlessly teased and bullied at school. And then she went home to her parents who were stressed out because they can't provide for their family. There were signs in restaurants that said no Indians allowed. There was prejudice toward Mama in her, quote, unnatural mixed marriage. Her children were called the N-word. The 50s were not idyllic. No, poor Pearl, right in the middle of her large family, felt like she had no one to turn to. And she began, after a very short period of time in San Francisco, to run away to her maternal grandmother's house, which was a dairy farm in the country. 
And they would fetch her back. They did it a couple of times, but she's like, take your hands off me and I'm out again. You know, you can't keep me here. And so finally they decided they would leave her there at the dairy farm for a year where her newly grown tough outer shell got a little melty again. She was living with her grandmother, her uncle and aunt, and four cousins. She would sleep with her grandmother, but get up at five o'clock in the morning to go milk the cows. You know, out in nature again. She's loving this. She did go to school out there, and she did thrive and change. I was thinking of it almost like grandma's finishing school because he took this hard little nugget of a girl and kind of polished her up a little bit. So when she went back home after her year in the country, she actually came back to a different house. For you see, her older brother, one of the two breadwinners in the family, had decided to get married. What that meant was that the family income was halved. He as nature intended, was about to provide for a new family and took his wages with him to provide for his new wife. But that left Papa in a giant bind as they no longer had his income to rely on. So they had to move to an area that was considered so dangerous that one day when Wilma was choking to death and Papa called the ambulance, the ambulance told him they wouldn't come to that neighborhood. In police cars, if they were left unattended, the windows were broken. It was very much crime-filled, but there was also something that was good in this area, and it was truly a cultural melting pot. There was people of all different ethnicities. It wasn't just Wilma going to school with white kids who are picking on her. She's going to school with a whole variety. For the first time in her story, she talks about having friends outside of her family. And not just friends, but best friends. Johnny Lee and Lavada, who introduced her to Etta James and B.B. King. I loved that, even though she had this terrible environment around her. She she was still with her family and she was finding friends and she was kind of sort of finding her way. There was a place, however, that saved her reason. There was on the edge of this neighborhood, a building called the Indian Center. It was a community center for many tribal people who had relocated to this area. Native Americans in California at the time were the largest growing collection of minorities, but they weren't able to see it until they started going to places like this Indian Cultural Center. And it wasn't just the Cherokee, but it was Native Americans from all tribes. They were able to continue their traditions and tell stories of their heritage. It gave Wilma a place where she could go, where she was accepted, where she was happy. Also, her father was becoming very active. So she was able to see people, her people, see the problems of their community and begin to solve them. So we don't have enough health services for impoverished Indians in San Francisco. Let's open a clinic. How do we do that? And they band together. So she was able to see this through her father and through her time at the Indian Cultural Center. And sometimes it was just a place that you could go where everybody knows your name. You know, um, (laughs) sometimes people just really need that. And Wilma just went through the motions in high school. She claims she doesn't remember a single teacher's name, but the Indian Center was where her real life was. And in 1963, she was able to end going to high school because she finally graduated.
Did you know that women's breast size and shape can change quite a few times in our lives? And Third Love can find a fit for all of them. Third Love offers more than 80 sizes, including their half cup sizes. When I first started wearing Third Love bras, I didn't realize how poorly my old brand not only fit, but held up over time. And I didn't realize how important comfort was to me until that first Third Love bra several years ago. You or someone you love, anyone, can try and discover the difference themselves. Every customer has 60 days to wear their bra, to wash it, to put it to the test, and if you don't love it, just return it. Not only are returns and exchanges free and easy, Third Love's team of fit stylists are dedicated to helping you find the perfect fit. All returns are cleaned and donated to women in need. Third Love has already donated over $15 million worth of bras. Third Love knows there's a perfect bra for everyone, so right now they're offering our listeners 15% off your first order. Go to thirdlove.com slash chicks now to find your perfect fitting bra and get 15% off your purchase. That's thirdlove, spell it out, T-H-I-R-D-L-O-V-E dot com slash chicks for 15% off today. The week Wilma graduated from high school, she got an admin job at a finance company. No one in her family had ever been to college. It didn't even occur to her to try to go to college. And very quickly, she was at a party with some friends one day and in walks this handsome man with a head wound from playing soccer. He's bleeding all over the place, but he's the hero because their team won. And she saw him and it was not love, but it was like at first sight. His name was Hector Hugo Oloya de Bardi, and he was from Ecuador. He was a college student from an extremely affluent family. He was handsome and charming. He was the perfect guy for a summer fling for a girl that's just starting out her real life. So, yes, of course, she's going to want a you know a snazzy boyfriend for the summer who could take her places to restaurants and cultural events that she never would have gone to on her own. She definitely saw how the other half lived. He kept asking her to marry him. Yes, it got serious fast. And she kept, oh, now, oh, now. But by October, she had said yes. And I have to say, I do not discount the reality of the quick courtship, as I also <laughs> had a whirlwind courtship and I have just celebrated my 25th anniversary. So, <laughs> so I am casting no aspersions on the quickness of their romance. Okay, let me ask you this. Did you and Mr. Graham have a discussion while you were buying your wedding rings about what his last name actually was? <laughs> she didn't know. She thought it was Barty because that's on in the name. But no, she didn't even know what her last name was going to be. In names from Southern America, Central America, the last name is actually a reference to the mother's family. So his mother was a Barty, mm -hmm. but his family name, his father's name was Aliyah. And so that's the one that you're going to take when you get married. Honestly, even if her parents disapproved, and I think they were not so excited about this guy, but what could 15-year-old bride mama say to 17-year-old bride Wilma? Nothing. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> well, she had been dating another uh, Native American boy that they really liked. But again, it's the same thing that happened to her parents. She's like, nope, I'm not going to marry him just because... You want me to. I want to marry Hugo. So they went off to Reno to get married on the fly on November 13th, 1963, which was her first airplane trip. They went to Chicago on their honeymoon. 
Mr. and Mrs. Olaya. And while they were there, an event happened which destroyed America's innocence, if it ever had any. And it definitely destroyed its hope. While they were in Chicago, they heard the news that President Kennedy had been assassinated. This is not a good way to start a marriage. And it's certainly not a good way to start your life as an adult. She turned 18 only four days before Kennedy was assassinated. I, of course, was not alive during that time period, but it was a a wake-up call and a mourning period for an entire population. And in fact, the ripples of that went all over the world. People grieved President Kennedy. When they got back and started to settle into real life, they took up residence with some relatives of Hugo's. And Hugo went to college during the day and worked at Pan Am at night. There's something romantical about Pan Am. I don't know. I don't know what it is. It doesn't exist anymore. Maybe that's what's romantic about it. But Wilma had a honeymoon baby. Oh, yes, she did. Unfortunately, her pregnancy didn't go very smoothly, even though she was young and healthy. She actually had to move in with her parents for a while until her daughter was born, which is nine months after Kennedy was assassinated. And they named the baby Felicia. She was quickly followed by a second daughter who they named Gina. So there she is in a traditional family, a very young traditional family. And around her, the awareness of the world was changing. The world itself was changing. She was in, in San Francisco, the epicenter of social movements of the early 60s that would be world famous by the late 60s. We all have a vision of the late 60s, don't we? Even if we only got it from movies or from dressing up like a hippie during school costume day at Halloween. (laughs) There's a lot going on and it started first in her neighborhood. Minorities of all kinds were deciding not to take it anymore. They wanted the end of discrimination. They wanted their own piece of the American dream. And San Francisco became the hub of new movements in art, in music, in thought. That opened her eyes to upright and in-your-face demands for equality. We're not going to beg anymore. We are going to lay out what we want, and that is what will happen. The National Farm Workers Organization. Cesar Chavez taught her that by working collectively, you can bring about change. Also in the air, the war in Vietnam, the protests that emerged from that, the Montgomery bus boycott, the march in Selma. Talk about living in interesting times. The country was a very divided place between the proponents of change and the proponents of not change. (laughs) Can't we just keep it the way it was? It's like, no, you can't keep us all down. It's not going to work anymore. And there was a corner in San Francisco that became quite famous, the gathering place for all the countercultures in America. And that was the corner of hate and Ashbury. So here's Wilma with her two little daughters pushing a stroller through all these. I mean, just imagine the hippiest movie you've ever seen. And she's just middle class pushing her stroller through the middle of it. And she's getting energized by it. She was starting to lean towards being the person of change. Meanwhile, her husband was like, no change. I like this life. I don't even like living in the city. Let's move to the suburbs. And he was kind of pressuring her to move out of this city, this area that was just starting to ignite her and go live with the potluck and swimming pool set, not with the peace and politics set. Her husband did take her to Europe. We went to see the fam in Ecuador with the heiress mother. She could have a good life. I've rescued you from your bad one. 
my dear, I think was his big position. I I rescued you from the bad life. Why don't you enjoy it? And I don't think his motives were bad at all. He wanted what he believed was the goal life. I know a lot of those people, even now, medium is good. Why are we unhappy with medium? And she did start to take some college courses just, you know, to try and find her way. She felt that she had some change coming. She just didn't know where. She had no direction. When she started taking college courses, taking classes that she wanted to take, suddenly the bad academic from high school was gone. She rocked college. And in Hugo's defense, he did try to support her. You know, she was interested in writing and reading. He bought her books and a typewriter. She took some courses in music. He bought her a guitar. Yes, it's things that he's throwing at her, but I think he's trying. He is, although he didn't get her anything for her sociology or her criminal justice classes. I'm not sure what you can get someone. (laughs) I brought you a gavel. He could get her handcuffs. That's a little saucy, but they do live in San Francisco. Yep. Yep. So this education was her own idea, and it became a passion. By the time Wilma was 23, she's only 23, (laughs) the country was a bubbling, boiling cauldron. The civil rights movement had just suffered the murder of Martin Luther King, and general hope and change had been shut down with the loss of Robert Kennedy, who had been a proponent of issues pertaining to Native American rights. The Native Americans began organized protests under the umbrella organization, the American Indian Movement, with sit-ins and letter-writing campaigns and lawsuits demanding equal representation. All of this swirling on her college campus and over at the old comfort zone, the Indian Center. Her mind is just full of gathering energy. And in November of 1969, when Wilma was 24, there was an event which made it all boil over, come out into the open, and it changed her life forever. The prison of Alcatraz, The Rock, a mostly inaccessible island off the coast of San Francisco, Isla de los Alcatrazos, island of the Pelicans, had been used as a prison since the mid-1800s, but had been a federal prison for the most dangerous prisoners in America since the 1930s. Public opinion and cost made the federal government decommission it in 1963. There was a loophole in one of those treaties back from the 1800s that said any unused federal lands seized from Native Americans must revert back to the tribes. Well, there was some land that had been seized from Native Americans, a 12-acre island called Alcatraz. Four Sioux men in full regalia claimed the island for their tribe under the Fort Laramie Treaty of 1868. Any male over 18 whose tribe had signed this agreement could file for a homestead on any unused federal land. Oh, (laughs) the government kicked them out within hours. Forget you. They said, that's not real. Another major occupation was being planned because the Indian Center had burnt down in a mysterious fire that everyone seems to think is arson and things were getting hot all (laughs) over the place. Lamar Hunt, rich oil man and former owner of the Kansas City Chiefs here in Kansas City football team, won a bid to turn it into an entertainment complex. The Native Americans thought, oh, no, no, we got to bring our plan forward a year. And it began with 14 occupiers. And they showed up 
with, <laughs> I love this part. <laughs> they showed up with $24 worth of beads. <laughs> hey, crackers, isn't that the right historical price for an island? <laughs> That's right. Oh, oh, the island of Manhattan. That's a nice callback. But they were also taken off the island by the Coast Guard the very next day. But something had begun. 89 Native Americans, men, women, and children, went back the next day and occupied the island. The Coast Guard wasn't sure what to do. I think it was the women and the children. And they set up a blockade. But people kept running the blockade with supplies. Famous people joined the cause, but churches and women's groups and unions and those Black Panthers and even the Boy and Girl Scouts broke through the blockade to bring supplies. The people were living there. They were squatting on the island. And one of the people that was bringing them supplies was Wilma. She had two young children, so she couldn't occupy Alcatraz with them, but she certainly could use her skills and intelligence to work on supply chaining. Is that a thing? Supply chaining? <laughs> it is. I just want to point out that four of Wilma's siblings and their families had moved out to the island. The population at one point was over a thousand people. And when Wilma went out on a boat to visit, this is just a fun fact that is so fun I can hardly even stand it. <laughs> she went out on a boat that was provided by the band Credence Clearwater Revival. <laughs> Named Clearwater. Alcatraz had a galvanizing influence on Native Americans all over the country. It wasn't obviously just, or in fact, mostly Cherokee on the island. It was representatives from as far away as Alaska, Oklahoma, the Seminoles in Florida. Everyone came to participate. It was a lightning rod. The protesters were able to stay on the island for 19 months. At some point, the original ones left. They were replaced by people who were kind of a mm, little more aggressive than the original group. And it just eventually fizzled out because there was lack of enthusiasm. But they managed to stay there for 19 months. With such luminaries as Jane Fonda and Candace Bergen. <laughs> I know. <laughs> As their guests for some nights. Well, uh, Wilma's father was diagnosed with a fatal kidney disease and began to fail at a really early age, though he told his children how proud he was that they had become revolutionaries. So at least he recognized that they were fighting for Native American rights. And poor Papa, whose last words as they left Mankiller Flats all those years ago, he said, the next time I see Mankiller Flats, I'll be in my coffin. He had his prediction come true. Charlie's body was brought back to Oklahoma by the family. The whole family went back. And despite the sad circumstances, when Wilma got back to Oklahoma, even though she hadn't been there for many years, she felt at peace and she felt at home. She basically breathed the breath of nostalgia and freedom, and it really started to get into her system. The children buried him on the old land and all the friends that her father had made long, long ago in that boarding school came from miles around to pay their respects to him. Those friendships had stuck. So when Wilma got home, however, she was diagnosed with the same disease that her father had just died from. And the doctors suspected she was probably going to die at some point in her 30s. And it energized her, even though she was very ill, to make change, to do something with her life. Now is the time. And Hugo wasn't on board at all. He was starting to forbid her from doing things 
he refused to buy her a car. She wanted a car so she could go from you know one group meeting to another, organizing more protests and more programs. So this is how far our girl has come. She went to the bank by herself, withdrew the money, and bought herself a little red Mazda. <laughs> I'm sure that went over really well when she got home. <laughs> Nevertheless, she continued her fundraising. She continued her volunteer coordination. Alcatraz had unleashed a powerful force. She became a volunteer legal worker for the Pitch River Tribe, whose land was being seized by Pacific Gas and electric. She worked with the legal team on the Legal Defense Fund and learned a lot. She learned the history of Native Americans in California, a lot about treaty rights and about international law. She traveled with her daughters all over the state of California to absorb knowledge from people of many tribes. I felt that my eyes were opened, she said. She felt pride in her heritage and history that she didn't think was possible. Her people told stories the same way we tell stories. We are storytellers. And I think it's a, um, how shall I say it, like a more humanistic way to relay information, to kind of touch the person's heart. And that's just what everyone was doing with Wilma. She was also able to learn some marketable skills. I mean, she's enriching her soul, so to speak. She's finding a purpose, but she's also learning how to write grant proposals to get money from the government. And she's learning how to organize a legal fund. These are all very marketable skills. And she's getting that during this time where she's also growing you know, into herself as a woman. So obviously, this is not going to go over well at home if the car didn't go well. And almost inevitably, Wilma asked for a divorce. And though there were some delays, regret, and dragging of feet, Wilma officially became Wilma Mankiller again. She took her old name. And to provide for her daughters, she worked as a social worker with the Urban Indian Resource Center. She attended school. She was volunteering. She was working on the dream to go back to Oklahoma, back to her home, until Hugo kept their youngest daughter after a visit to a circus and didn't let Wilma see her for a year. He even enrolled his daughter Gina in school in Ecuador, out of Wilma's reach. Please let her come for a visit. Finally, he did let her come for a visit, and it was very, very, very hard to let Gina go back with her father. But Wilma thought she had a plan. Okay, so Gina came back for the second visit. And Wilma asked, do you want to stay with me and your sister? And Gina, even though she was being bribed with all kinds of material goods from the family in Ecuador, said that she wanted to stay with her sister and her mother. So Hugo was out. Hugo was out of the parenting business from then on, I think, as far as I ever hear of him again. Mm -hmm. I don't. No, he wasn't mentioned at all in the stuff I read after this point. Wilma was very afraid of kidnapping She could not be around her daughters 24 hours a day. And so that's another incentive to move to Oklahoma. And that's what they did. After a couple of false starts where they, (laughs) they don't know how to pack a truck and it skidded off the road, et cetera. They just (laughs) hired a U-Haul. That's what she should have done. Yeah, in the first place. Yeah. (laughs) And so they got in their U-Haul and they moved back to Oklahoma to the old ancestral land to stay in a cabin with no running water. Although... They had moved on up to electricity. Can you imagine if 10-year-old Wilma had electricity in her house? I mean, that would have changed a lot. I mean, they could boil the water, sure. They still had to go get it. But 
lights and stoves and yeah. Mama had a gas powered clothing ringer. <laughs> and I looked that up and that is a contraption I would not let in the house. That is scary. I bet it was loud as heck. Uh, I got the impression it was outside. I don't know why. It but it couldn't have a, been outside all the time. In a shed? Maybe. Like a carport? You know, just a roof? Maybe. I don't know. I don't know. So Wilma had $20 and a dream. And though they had to live with Mama first for a little bit, they were able to move into their own place. Most of Wilma's brothers and sisters had come home, too. That was happening all over the country. That Native American people who had been as they said, terminated, tribally mm-hmm. terminated, were creeping back to the ancestral homelands in defiance of the government. Wilma, of course, had to get a job and she wanted to work at the Cherokee Nation headquarters in Oklahoma. She attempted to get jobs there several times. You're overqualified. It's not a fit. And she just kept going back until she said, look, I want to work here. I will take anything and I will do a great job at it. Anything ended up being the economic stimulus coordinator position. So she was hired by the Cherokee Nation headquarters. She was paid a salary of $11,000, which to us were like, yikes. But it's the equivalent of about 50000 right now. Not a whole lot as far as living goes. But in Oklahoma, she could support her children. What her job was is to get Native American kids through college and then, as trained professionals, back with their people to improve the lot of all Native Americans. That's pretty good. It is. Now, her her only experience had been in grassroots activism back in San Francisco. And the Cherokee Nation was not grassroots. They were a government. There was politics involved. The Cherokee government, as an entity, had just begun. In fact, the first elected chief since 1903 had just retired. The second, Ross Swimmer, had just taken over when she arrived, and he was a man of action and immediately put through a new constitution. There would be a principal chief and a deputy elected every four years. The tribal council would serve as the legislature. There was a judicial branch with a Supreme Court. It was infuriating to me that they immediately devolved into arguments, though. The whole Cherokee Nation wanted to argue about who counted. Who counted as Cherokees? Pure blood? Quarter? What about people who live here who are Shawnee or Pawnee? You know, did they get to vote? There's lots to do. There's lots to do. Well, and even where did they live? You know, if they didn't live in the Cherokee Nation area, could they vote? I mean, there's all kinds of questions so early in this new administration and these new government that's being formed. So, yeah, there's going to be some kinks. They discovered that Ms. Mankiller over in the economic department had grant writing experience and they put her to work and her successful funding led to a promotion. She worked on the improvement of home health care, of senior citizens welfare, youth concerns. She's only 31, and she is really reaching great heights within the new government. She decided to go ahead and finish her college degree. While keeping ties with her old job and a promise to hire her back, she got an on-campus job to support her daughters, who were thriving in their new environment. One day, however, there was a bad omen. To most of us in the modern day, this would be the treat of all time and definitely Instagram-worthy. But to her... And the rest of the Cherokee, this was an extraordinarily bad omen. She came home one day to find her house surrounded by owls. 
not delivering a letter to anybody, <laughs> but an owl is a symbol of a person in the Cherokee Nation who practices what they call bad medicine, revenge medicine. It's a symbol of death. And here, her whole house is surrounded by a symbol of death. It's a very unsettling premonition of doom to have happen to you. And the very next morning, she was in a head-on collision on her way to school. The driver of the other car had died on the scene, but Wilma's legs were shattered. Her face was crushed. She was rushed to the hospital on an ambulance, and she vividly recalls almost dying at the time and said that it was the most profound experience she had ever had. And later she said, to her, death felt like being bathed in love. Now, she wasn't sure if she brought herself back because she had to be there for her kids or if the EMT that was on her chest doing CPR brought her back. But she was brought back and rolled immediately into surgery. And for three weeks, it was really touch and go. And every time she'd kind of groggily wake up, she'd say, what happened to the driver of the other car? Everybody that was around her was like, it's OK. Don't worry about it. It's OK. Let's just get you better. After three weeks, she was visited by the husband of her best friend who had to tell her that his wife, her best friend, Sherry, had been in that other car. She had been the person who had died immediately. Even though she had no real guilt, guilt, like she didn't cause the accident. In fact, her friend was trying to pass a car and that's why she got hit head on. She had survivor's guilt really badly and also, of course, grief for her friend. So she was going through a lot of mental stuff. After 17 surgeries, she narrowly avoided amputation, by the way, of one of her legs. She had a year of near helplessness. Luckily, her sister Linda was able to come over and help her do everything from getting dressed to washing to eating. I'm very glad Sister Linda was around. She, Wilma, referred to herself as the woman who lived before and the woman who lived after. After the accident, she said that she felt more focused and less angry. So even though she'd gone through this horrific incident and her friend had died, she was less angry after she had recuperated. And as if the universe heard that thought in her head, she began to feel weak unexpectedly. Her muscles began to fail and didn't work properly. And it wasn't until she saw old Jerry Lewis and his telethon that she started to realize that the symptoms he was describing of muscular dystrophy sounded like what was happening to her. And back she went to the doctor. She was diagnosed with myasthenia gravis, and it is a form of muscular dystrophy. So her health, even though she had recuperated from the accident, her health was still horrible. She called upon all possible ancestors. And by that, in her culture, she meant everything. Trees, deer, blades of grass, beams of sunlight, everything. And every reserve of positive will in her system to beat this disease. She also received every possible treatment from modern medicine and beat it back. Not cured, but in remission. She felt, although most anger had left her body, still she felt angry with the impersonal nature of Western medicine and wrote a short story called Keeping Pace with the Rest of the World, in which she described her doubt that a doctor in a Western hospital could help her because he didn't even know her. And so at 32, having been through more than, man, I can't even say how much she's been through, 
She was determined to not waste her life. She had seen how fragile it was and how it could turn in the space of a second. After about a year and a half, she was finally able to go back to work. And when she did, she got a new position. She was the director of Cherokee Nation Community Development, and she had one project. It was to get water to a community called Bell, a tiny little town with 350 residents and no water lines. 95% of the town was Cherokee, and many of them were very old, and they only spoke Cherokee. Her project was to collect enough money to buy the supplies and the tools needed to bring water. But Wilma felt that the best people to help the Cherokee people were the Cherokee people. And what she presented to the town was, the Cherokee Nation will bring you the tools and what you need to get this done, but you all need to dig the trenches and actually lay the pipe. You have to do the work. So you have to be the instrument to solve your own problems. And oh, did the news come betting that it would fail. They sure did. But the people of Bell lived up to Wilma's faith. She didn't have a budget, so she fundraised and wrote grants and, and got the initial funding for the equipment. And she turned the thing around on a national stage. And so instead of coming back to gloat or to say, oh, those Indians, blah, 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 the national news came back to praise her, to make her into a household name. The name Man Killer will be a nice hook on the evening news. You know, she became, mm, so where, where's the level between micro and famous? She became nationally known. Such a figure as Gloria Steinem said of Wilma Mankiller during this period, watching individual people flower is Wilma's greatest reward. Yes. She had a co-organizer during this project, a man named Charlie Soap. Charming, handsome. Versed in Cherokee history, even more than she was, he had the same values. He, however, had been able to live like a traditional Cherokee and keep the lifestyle going. And they were work friends for a long time. And then they were friend friends. That's actually a pretty big step. <laughs> <laughs> he had to divorce his second wife. He had been married twice and he had three children from, from those marriages. So he had to get that out of the way first. And then after and only after all the obstacles were out of the way... And they were more than friends. Back in Washington, the Bureau of Indian Affairs was heating up. America was finally, really? Question mark? We're not sure, but finally and openly turning toward government recognition of tribal rights, of religious protections. The rights and the interests of the Native Americans were becoming important again and respected to a degree in mainstream society. So that is taken away in Washington. Back in Oklahoma, Chief Swimmer had developed cancer. And through his cancer, he was able to see who he could rely on, what members of his administration, what friends were going to be there for him, and which ones weren't. Because people dropped off. They thought that he was too sick to do the job. But it was time for re-election for him. He needed a deputy. He saw someone who could support him who had the skills and experience to run with him as his deputy, Wilma. No, thank you, she said. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like when he was, uh, when Hugo was asking to marry and her first instinct was to be like, no, she didn't think she was at that level. She didn't think she was good enough. She said later, this is like running for Congress. This is a big deal. 
and it was just me. She had serious imposter syndrome, but Ross Swimmer saw something in her, and eventually she agreed. As you should know from listening to our show, our past shape our future. Is your family's legacy digitally preserved so it can be passed down? Well, mine is, at least part of it. (laughs) I sent in some old VHS tapes, one of which was my wedding. It's a thing of beauty with my grandma's spiky handwriting on the outside. But the fact remains that I had no machine in my house that could play such a thing anymore. And I bet a lot of you don't either. It was so amazing to be able to show our wedding to our son, who is 14. And of course, he remarked, you guys look really young. We were also, my dear, very, very cool. The process with Legacy Box is easy. They send you the kit, you send in the media, and they send you back a digitized copy of all the media that you sent them. You should take advantage of this Black Friday Cyber Monday deal. While everyone else is out and about going crazy, you can relax knowing that the latest technology will expire, but memories never do, and you have just preserved them for your loved one. Order your Legacy Box today to take advantage of Legacy Box's Black Friday Cyber Monday sale. For a limited time, you can receive an unprecedented 60% off. Go to LegacyBox.com chicks to get 60% off your first order. Save your time and save your memories. Go to LegacyBox.com slash chicks and save 60%. So at last, Wilma Mankiller agreed to run as Ross Swimmer's deputy chief in the next election. She decided that if she didn't run... She was no longer allowed to complain about the job anyone brave enough to have run for office was actually doing. (laughs) (laughs) And so she said, I have a responsibility to use my talents to help my people. And that's pretty much the platform she ran on at all times. She was very nervous, though, because she has a very liberal background as an activist, as an agitator. I mean, I went to Alcatraz. That's cool, right? Because Ross Swimmer was not that guy. No. Ross Swimmer owned a bank. (laughs) He was not. He was a Republican and she was a Democrat, but he saw enough in her that he knew it was going to work. Another thing that she did to say, this is who I am. I'm going to be transparent. She quit her job at the Cherokee Nation so that there would be no image of conflict. But she was a very unpopular candidate. Is it the Alcatraz thing, she said? Is it, is it my politics? Is it I'm too outspoken? No, it's because you're a woman. Your very existence in this race is offensive to God, said some people. The hostility grew. There were death threats. Her tires were slashed on her car. She got hate mail. She got what she referred to as prank calls, but she'd pick up the phone and there was somebody racking a shotgun. That doesn't seem like a prank to me. To me either. And there was another woman that was running for the same position. Look how far they've come from that matrilineal society that they don't even want a woman running for deputy chief. 
Well, she used her experience as a community organizer to win hearts and minds. She went door to door. She explained who she was and what she was about and all about her kids and how she grew up on the man killer flats and her family this and that. And she told stories and she won. She beat out two other candidates to become the first woman deputy chief. The results were challenged by the losers, but upheld. Evidently, there was... um. She had won mostly through absentee ballots. And so there's that old issue again. Did those people have a right to vote type Mm -hmm. of thing? And the judicial branch of the Cherokee Nation ruled that they did. And therefore, she had won. There was also a hostile legislative branch who did not want her at all. So she suffered through, as deputy chief, two years of what she called all the responsibility and zero of the authority. They found her too idealistic. But she just put her head down. And she worked on the issues she knew she could make a difference on, and she really made a name for herself. And then, halfway through the term that they were to serve, Mr. Swimmer was offered a job with the Bureau of Indian Affairs up in Washington, D.C., and he really genuinely felt like he couldn't turn it down. He would have 14,000 employees. That department had a $1 billion, with a B, as in bureaucracy, budget. And especially with the momentum that had been happening in the background toward reclamation of Indian lands, of recognition of their rights as people, as citizens, as owners of things, he felt like it would be horrible if he turned it down and he was really forced to do it. And so he wanted to, and he did. The Constitution of the Cherokee Nation provided that if the chief resigns or leaves or dies... The deputy chief simply takes over with no election and no controversy. That's just what happens. Although Wilma felt like there's going to be controversy because of what happened last time. And she braced herself for tires and windows broken and prank calls again and nothing happened. And she felt like, well, maybe everyone's just, I'll just hammer you at the election. We'll just let you do for two more years and then (laughs) we'll just get you out then. On December 5th, 1985, Wilma Mankiller was sworn in as the chief of the Cherokee Nation. I kind of wanted to read her oath, her swearing in. Yeah. I, Wilma P. Mankiller, do solemnly swear that I will faithfully execute the duties of principal chief of the Cherokee Nation and will, to the best of my abilities, preserve, protect, and defend the constitutions of the Cherokee Nation and the United States of America. I swear further that I will do everything within my power to promote the culture, heritage, and tradition of the Cherokee Nation. Followed by thunderous applause. Applause. (laughs) She was 40 years old. She was a first-time grandmother, and now she was the first woman principal chief of the Cherokee Nation. She also said, I have to perform double well because I'm a woman, which is the truth, even in history podcasting. (laughs) (laughs) But she became the public face of the Cherokee Nation. The press loved her. As I said, the name Mankiller, first woman chief. Oh, that's a headline. The headline brought them in, but Wilma herself kept them. We're going to put some uh, links to YouTubes of her. She draws your attention in. She's so relaxed and seems so honest. And I totally fell in love with her just watching one. I was like, dang, I wish I had known her because this woman is really something else. So after the big triumph of having acceded to the big job, Wilma Mankiller finally married her beau, Charlie Soap, her best friend, who I must say I really like because she asked him who his personal heroes were. 
And he said without hesitation, you are my personal hero. I love that. She had to marry him. How could she not? There's no apprehension in her with this marriage at all. He was smart and laid back, and he had the passion for the Cherokee people, the same passion that she had. What a power couple. When the rest of Ross Swimmer's term ran out, Wilma had to decide what to do. Was she going to run? Was she not going to run? People made special trips out to her house in their cars to knock on the door and tell her not to run. And she looked at Charlie Soap and she said, my friend, if one more car pulls up here tonight and tells me not to run, I'm going to run. And that will make my decision for me as if on cue. (laughs) And it was a go for launch. She was running. And after a pretty close battle in which there was a runoff election with the second place contender, because she only got 45% at the beginning. And then after the runoff, she was able to pull it up and become the very first elected female chief of the Cherokee Nation in history. Her list of accomplishments during her tenure as chief is extraordinarily long. They all focus on rural development. They all focus on raising the Cherokee people out of poverty. She created a job center. She created educational programs. She increased tribal health clinics. She attracted outside businesses to the area. She developed casinos. And with the casinos came the tourists and the hotels. She tripled the enrollment of the Cherokee Nation. And the budget she was running was $150 million. This is a big operation, and she's in charge of all of it. Well, she brought new businesses to her people, but she also brought pride. The pride that they really had been denied since, I don't know, 1650 or Mm -hmm. so, when it all started to go downhill. She brought it all back around and lit the spark within her people that had kind of been tamped down by the forces of history in America. Because she was a woman, not only was she working towards Native American rights, but she was also working towards women's rights. Little Cherokee girls could say, someday I'm going to grow up and be chief. That was something they never would have thought that they could do. Because of the level of activism in her life, she was very good friends with Gloria Steinem. They just palled around together. Can you imagine? It's like (laughs) Oprah and Gail, Gloria and Wilma. (laughs) She was also friends and co-workers with Dolores Huerta, who was a compatriot of Cesar Chavez, the co-founder of the National Farm Workers Association, a labor leader, a civil rights activist. So she has a network of powerful women working for a good cause. And she's doing this all like she's always been very optimistically with a very positive attitude, which is made even more impressive when you know that she had some very serious health issues going on around this time. That kidney illness that she had for years, it progressed to the point that she needed a kidney transplant. The one that had been the co-breadwinner with Papa back when they both had to work in the rope factory. So from way back, the oldest brother had been taking care of them. And he's the one that stepped up and gave her a kidney. During this, she's also receiving Ms. Magazine's Woman of the Year Award. So she's sick. And she's doing her job, but she's doing it so well that she's being honored for it. I don't think I could do that. I get a cold and I'm like, oh, Netflix me. <laughs> Luckily, Woman Man Killer was not binging. What is? What would she be binging? Certainly not The Good Place. Disney Plus has lots of documentaries on it. 
Well, she's her own documentary. She made another project similar to the one she had done in Bell, Oklahoma. Her whole philosophy seems to be the best helper of us is us, but a village of us. You know, let's let's give each other a hand up. And as we succeed, we reach our hand down and we pull the next person up. And that's how she was. And she had another project called the Kenwood Project, which was kind of um, another community development program, which actually won the HUD Housing and Urban Developments Award of National Merit. She's getting a whole lot of national recognition. She also fought the government when it was necessary. She participated in a lawsuit that went all the way to the Supreme Court, which was called Choctaw Nation versus Oklahoma. The United States Army Corps of Engineers had moved a river and thus deprived the Native Americans of access to the banks of that river, which was economic distress on them. And that case went all the way to the Supreme Court, which agreed that the Cherokee Nation, the Chickasaw Nation, and the Choctaws owned the banks and the riverbed of the Arkansas River, and they would be paid for their loss of access to all of the resources that they could no longer get a hold of because of the moving of the river. And they won. So that's good. She was invited to the Ronald Reagan White House as a representative of the Native American community, and she thought this was going to be a productive discussion. But when she got in the room and discovered that it was nothing more than a photo opportunity for the president to pretend he was at all interested in anything anyone had to say, woman man killer left the negotiation. She was very disappointed. The publicity was good, though, that she went there, but she herself was very disappointed. And though she did like to play politics at the highest level, she had a line that she didn't want to cross. And that line was pretending to agree with the president who was anti the rights of Native Americans. She wasn't going to give him what he needed to pretend, you know. She was invited to meet with other Indian leaders at the President George H.W. Bush White House. And his people were actually willing to listen. And she felt like, okay, we are finally on the right road. That other guy was not for us, but this guy and his people are willing to draft new legislation and to get on board with what we're trying to work toward in the Cherokee Nation. And so she was full of hope again that perhaps the two governments, and that's how she put it, the two governments could work together for the benefit of all men and women. Then it was time for her to run yet again for another term. She ran and she won with 80 80- Three percent of the vote. I guess they like what she's doing now. <laughs> Let's proceed to another presidency. Wilma Mann Keller actually endorsed Bill Clinton for president. In the middle of this term, she sat down to write her autobiography. It's equal parts Wilma's life with the Native American and Cherokee history. In the list of honors she received, she got a doctorate of humane letters from Drury College. She got another doctorate from a university in Maine. She was inducted into the Oklahoma Hall of Fame and also the National Cowgirl Museum. In Fort Worth, Texas. That seems interesting. Yeah, I'm tilting my head to the side. Okay, (laughs) I can see it. So honor after honor after honor followed. Wilma had always told people that when she started to act as a politician, like the politicians she had protested in California, it was time for her to step down. After 12 years as chief and 17 years working for the Cherokee Nation, she did just that. 
Although it probably wasn't because she was becoming such a centrist, she had more health problems. Wilma was 50 years old and her health was really, really taking a downturn. To complicate matters, the people who took over after her, there was a lot of drama. They wanted to erase her and Swimmer from any programs that they had started. They wanted to scrap them. It was not good. And it ended up with a lot of the Cherokee administration being indicted on criminal charges. But Wilma had more important things to think about. To recuperate from her time as a chief, she took a position for one term teaching at Dartmouth College in New Hampshire. It was wintertime in New Hampshire, and she had, to buy, <laughs> she had to buy winter gear for the first time. But she was able to teach a new generation in college about all the things she'd learned, not only as a civil rights activist, but about Native American rights as well for a full semester. She then embarked on a national lecture tour. She spoke on a lot of different subjects, obviously tribal rights, but women's rights, cancer awareness, healthcare in general. She spoke to groups big and small and wrote many articles that she had published in different publications. At 54, she received a honorary degree from Smith College. And right after that, when she was 55, President Clinton awarded her the Presidential Medal of Freedom, which is the highest honor that you can get in the United States if you are a civilian. And I am very sorry to say that the universe does not let her stay in a happy place for very long because right after she received the Presidential Medal of Freedom, she was diagnosed with more kidney problems and had to receive a second transplant. This time she received a kidney from a niece. She was also, because that wasn't bad enough, diagnosed with lymphoma. So she's undergoing a lot of medical treatments at this time. And she's doing all that stuff. I just can't get over that. She's also writing multiple books, editing a book called The Reader's Companion to U.S. Women's History, and working still on the lecture circuit. She was contributing to books and articles and was in the public eye the whole time. In 2009, Charlie announced to the world that Wilma had been diagnosed with terminal pancreatic cancer. And on April 6, 2010, Wilma Pearl Mankiller died at her home. She was 64 years old. Over 1,200 people attended her service, which was held at the Cherokee National Cultural Ground in Tahlequah. And President Barack Obama did not come to the funeral, but a speech from him was read there, as well as from Bill and Hillary Clinton. Gloria Steinem eulogized her during the service. It was a service that had traditional Cherokee ceremony elements to it. Even in death, she's honoring her heritage by having a funeral like this. Towards the end of the funeral, her daughter Felicia read something that Wilma herself had written to be read at her funeral. She included a sentence that said, I would like you to bury any unkindness or anger or hurtful things that I have done. Bury them with me. And then her daughter held up a single white feather and said, rest in peace, mom. You'll forever be in our hearts. So that is the end of the life of Wilma Mankeller. However, she does go on. After her death, her husband, Charlie, helped produce a feature film about the Bell Project. 
And in 2015, she was one of the nominees to replace Andrew Jackson on the $20 bill. Harriet Tubman won the voting, but she was one of the candidates. Wouldn't that have been awesome? That's like a direct competitor to the philosophies of Andrew Jackson, isn't it? I approve of Harriet Tubman being on the 20, but I'm just saying, oh, wouldn't that have been a slap in the face? Wilma made so many strides for Native American people, for the Cherokee people during her life. She elevated their cause, but we still have some work to do. Native Americans make up 2% of the U.S. population, but their rates of homelessness, poverty, and assault are higher than the national average. Although November is Native American Heritage Month, we're here to kind of be the proponents of the fact that perhaps every month should be Native American Heritage Month. And that would be a uh, proposal that Woman Man Killer would get behind (laughs) quite strongly. And now it's time for media. The main piece of writing that you should read, and um, it jumps back and forth quite confusingly, you kind of have to get into the rhythm, is Wilman Mankiller's autobiography, which is called Mankiller, A Chief and Her People, in which you can learn how far back all of the destruction goes, really, and how far she came toward rectifying it. That's interesting. I had no problem going back and forth. It's like when you read a novel and it's going from different characters back and forth. That's how I read it. So I didn't have any issue with it going back and forth. I thought it was excellent. She wrote it with um, a man named Michael Wallace. Another book, I am so embarrassed that I didn't even know this book existed. But I rectified not only the fact that I didn't know it existed, but I bought it after I just picked it up at the library. I was like, I need this book. It's the one that she was editing, The Reader's Companion to U.S. Women's History, edited by Wilma Mankiller and a whole list of other people. They're entries of a long list of women that tell the story of women's history across races, ethnicities, classes. It's a really amazing book. Another compilation type of book is called Every Day is a Good Day, Reflections by Contemporary Indigenous Women. And Alice Walker, who wrote The Color Purple, one of my favorite books and movies, she wrote, Let us who have suffered so much and those who have been ignorant of suffering grow our hearts again to their utter fullness. Hearing these voices, let us know the tide is beginning to turn, that knowledge of the way of balance has not been lost. Let us welcome home in ourselves and in the world the wisdom of the strong. That is a good blurb. I know. (laughs) I can't say anything better than that. That was one of those books that just kind of made my heart warm when I read it. Stories of indigenous women's lives in contemporary America. And it was it was beautiful. I just love the reading for this particular episode. It made me very happy. The children's book that I liked the best, although I have to tell you, every time I open it, I try to open it the back way because the title's on the back cover. Um, is called Wilma's Way Home, The Life of Wilma Mankiller by Doreen Rappaport, illustrated by Linda Kukuk. K-U-K-U-K. That's how, I don't know how to say her name. There's a large portrait of Wilma Mankiller on the front and then the titles on the back. So every single time I open this book, that's my only complaint. Um, <laughs> as there are many quotes, many um, the illustrations cover most of every page. And it's a really large format book. I would say it's probably 18 by 18 square. Nice. The problem that I ran into with all the materials that I picked up is that because she had died only in 2010, 
she's not dead in the stories. She's continuing to do her work. So that's a little disappointing that there's not more books about her out there. I hope that changes over time. Like, a, you know, a proper biography not written by her would be nice. But maybe somebody's on it. I just don't know about it. Those are the books. And as to the movies, there is the movie about Bell, Oklahoma, called The Cherokee Word for Water. And also there is an interview, like a, a video interview with Charlie Soap about that movie on YouTube that we can link you to. The actual movie, you can stream it on the Wilma Mankiller Foundation site. It costs five bucks. It's an independently produced movie. So there's not a lot of, you know, Hollywood slickness to it. But it tells the story of Wilma arriving back in Oklahoma and working on the Bell Project and her relationship with Charlie. It's, it's really cute. There's some things they changed and I didn't understand it. They changed the name of her best friend. And I tried looking around to find out why they did that, but I couldn't find an answer. It might have had something to do with wanting to protect her family just from in from interest. I was wondering if there was like a spiritual reason why they didn't use it. Oh, I don't, I don't know. know. Well, Wilma Mankiller also, because she did a lot of stuff, made a Cherokee cookbook. <laughs> of course she did. So like many other cookbooks, I am probably not going to cook from them because I am not a good cook, but it is an interesting read. It's just traditional Cherokee recipes using traditional ingredients. Couldn't be more absolutely traditional American than that. If you see it in the library or uh, online, you can pick that up. The Cherokee Nation in Oklahoma has a website, CherokeeNation.com. And what it is, is a hub for all the museum sites of the Cherokee Nation across 14 counties. They have buildings that they had gotten back from the United States government and they restored them. And this is kind of just a portal to finding them. It's not, there's no virtual tours on them or anything, but it's an impressive collection of of sites that are in mostly Oklahoma. And there's a cute little, uh, there's a cute shop online too, where you can get lots of Native American handicrafts. If you are interested in uh, learning the Cherokee language, you can go to a site run by a man named Tom Belt, Cherokee language teacher, <laughs> and try your hand or your voice. There's actually another one on YouTube that we'll also link you up to. It's the Cherokee Word of the Week. What we is the Cherokee Word of the Week? I don't know what the Cherokee word of the week is, but I do know that they don't have a word for by. What they say is, till we meet again. Ah, Okay, I'm Googling right now. Cherokee word of the week. It's a woman, very young woman. It's super short. It's like a, under a minute. No, I know, but it doesn't organize it by date. No, it does not. Bummer. Here, wait, hold on. I really want, hold on. I really want to find it. Okay. The most recent Cherokee word of the week that I can come up with is pottery. And welcome to Cherokee word of the week. <laughs> cool. Yeah. I loved it. I probably can't, without her permission, play that on the show, but. <laughs> oh, we'll put it in the show notes. Okay. Gada guga. Pottery. <laughs> it's a pretty language once your ear gets going on it. I guess it gets acclimated to it. I don't have anything else. And in closing, why don't we end with the quote that is on Wilma Mankeller's tombstone. I want to be remembered as the person who helped us restore our faith in ourselves. Thanks for listening. Don't have to go haunt
If you liked what you heard today, tell a few friends, won't you? Or leave a review for us on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or iHeartRadio or your favorite podcast app. Follow us on Twitter at The History Chicks. That's actually just Susan. <laughs> I'm over at Instagram, The History Chicks without an X. And you can find us both on Facebook, the main page, and our Facebook group, The Lounge, where the action is packed and the friends are made on a daily basis. All you do is go to the Facebook page and click join group. Answer a simple question to prove you're a human being and you're in. I tell you what, I have to apologize for not putting a Pinterest board up the last few times. Pinterest has made it very, very difficult to put up a pen. So I hope they fix that or maybe I can overcome my um, reticence to use the new inferior way. So... I will try to get back on that. So there is not a Pinterest board yet for this show, but ideally there will be. The song in the middle is Cherokee by Matt Rusin. And the song at the end, a History Chicks classic, is Marie Hines' Worth the Fight. Wipe the darkest shades away Happiness, your saving grace Ignorance won't clean the slave won't find your final resting place Don't circle round the task at hand Or take a fall when you can stand Disregard the reprimand Pictures to paint, more horizons to chase, something better in searching, reaching, burning, bleeding black and white, deeper oceans to swim, unpredictable whims, and you're learning, you're learning, freedom's worth the fight. Pictures to paint, more horizons to chase. 